All right, so welcome to Smith Weekly's Nuclear Report Q&A event. Thanks for joining us. We want to remind the attendees that everything contained herein at this event is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The opinions expressed in this event are those of the hosts and guests, and they do not purport to reflect the opinions or views of Smith Weekly Research. We appreciate in, in advance the questions coming in from our audience. We've got Andrew Weekly of Smith Weekly Research and myself, Levi Brandstetter of USS Investing as your hosts. And so first off, we're going to provide an overview of the report and then we'll get into a Q&A session. So please enter your questions as they come up while we're in the process of going through the report. With that, Andrew, let's start walking us through the report. Well, good morning, uh, good afternoon, and good night to everybody that's joined us around the world. I hope everything's going well. Uh, so I want to start out by running through uh, the report kind of page by page and kind of give everybody a an overview of what we were thinking as we put it together and try to summarize it the best we can here um, and then uh, we'll move as as I move through just go ahead and post your questions in the chat box and we'll get to those at the end and then uh, we'll go from there so we probably spent uh, oh I don't know it's a good amount of time putting this thing together probably uh, we started working on it um, somewhere around, uh, I want to say November was when we started doing that. With that, we kind of were looking at the sector at the time and had looked at our old reports and uh, put everything kind of together and, and uh, we're trying to figure out what we were going to do. And I decided that this was probably going to be our last attempt to put something even more comprehensive together. Anyway, so we decided we would really expand and try to cover even more than we did last time uh, in 2018 and, and even more than uh, 2017. Anyway, that's what we went ahead and did and, and uh, it seemed to have uh, worked out pretty well. It just kind of started from there as we moved into December, did quite a bit more work and as we were doing that, we were working through our Smith Weekly discussions and covering a lot of guests in the month of uh, December, we had a lot of guests on and then um, after that, we really started spending a bunch of time specifically in uh, January. Uh, I don't know how many countless nights we had working on this uh, 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the, in the night trying to get this thing working. And uh, anyway, so a lot of time put into it. And for me, we were going through each and every piece um, myself. So everything from formatting of the report to putting together the uh, random infographics that we had uh, thought up and put together during that time. And uh, so it really was an extensive process. And as you can imagine, a lot of the time that was uh, being taken really took a lot of time. And so I was pretty much the only one that was involved in the report, putting it together. So you can imagine, you can imagine that it would take four or five months to, uh, to really get this whole thing put together for everybody. And so that's what we kind of did. And, and uh, so far it uh, worked out pretty good. We were able to stick to our time and uh, get that done. And so anyway, we hope that uh, everybody enjoyed the report uh, that's gotten it so far. I think we want to say right now with updated numbers, we have around uh, 200 uh, different uh, parties that have purchased the report. Um, and so that number is uh, growing. Uh, quite a bit. Uh, as you can imagine, that number is not terribly big, really. And so there's not really a lot of people out there that have it. But anyway, nonetheless, it's uh, 
certainly growing and and a lot of popularity that's starting with the report and so we uh, we're enjoying that quite a bit and uh, anyway so that's pretty much it and I'll get back to my screen here and uh, we'll we'll kind of hop into it here so the, one of the first things we wanted to do is we wanted to kind of the first couple pages here we wanted to put in some headlines and we thought that uh, it was good to add some various headlines that, that had started to show up uh, back in 2017 there was almost no word whatsoever about the sector certainly in 2016 it was even quieter but then as kind of 2017 went along more and more started to happen and of course uh, 2018 quite a bit more anyway so we continued to uh, get more and more media coverage and a number of good media names there that started showing up with different articles and so forth and uh, so that's what we wanted to do out of the gate and then from the get-go John Borjoff had read our report in 2017, and so he he had sent us a note after reading our report, and so I thought it was a really good piece to have John in here, uh, being in the industry as long as he had been, and and with his uh, uh, quite impressive move that he had done with Paladin, and of course everybody knows the story how it ended and so forth, but uh, that whole piece was was important, and uh, so getting a a little bit of a word from him about our report was was nice to have. So uh, anyway, uh, we thought that that was a good piece to add in. Anyway, so that's why he continues to be in there. And then of course, a little bit for myself. And then the, the table of contents, we tried to get it to summarize the best we could. And so I thought we uh, did a pretty good job of, of highlighting most of the report in the summary table of contents here. And then of course, uh, a brief letter, you know, more so for beginners who are new to the sector. Uh, we thought that this was a nice uh, intro piece uh, for people to read and uh, kind of get you motivated a little bit, adds a little bit of uh, controversial subjects and topics uh, to try to get people motivated to, to read through the report. And so we thought we would add that. And then we had a conversation with New Scale Power uh, back, uh, I want to say it was December, we thought adding this in was a good piece. Uh, New Scale was kind enough to provide us this uh, piece from their marketing folks, and we thought we would add that in. And you know, if the new, if the whole SMR thing does take off, I think that is going to be not only positive for the sector, uranium, and for nuclear energy, but I really think that uh, this provides a, a real game changer uh, on how energy is looked at and and how you can put it more of a, of a wide scale, independent small plants around the world uh, in remote places uh, in countries that can't afford a conventional plant. Uh, we know that those conventional plants are quite expensive. And so we thought that uh, it was good to add this in. And, and uh, I, we, we hope that SMRs take off. We think that they're uh, a fantastic uh, way to go. And quite honestly, with the uh, naval applications of small modular reactors going back probably 50 years, it really makes sense to commercialize them. And They've already been around for a long time anyway. Uh, I'm not gonna touch on every page here, folks. We're just gonna kind of skip through. Uh, we have some different pieces here, just kind of overview of the of the sector and nuclear energy. Uh, we have some interesting charts and so forth uh, throughout the report. I think here to point out the bottom piece here, uranium prices 2016 to 2018, I think it's important to note the convergence of the uh, long-term and uh, spot price. I think that's, uh, an interesting piece that's coming together here and, and to see this starting starting to move the other direction uh, from here. Uh, anyway, so as we continue through, we kind of get into sentiment and talk about perception in the sector, uh, nuclear energy, and then also uranium. 
and then uh, oh, we we touch a little bit on the anti-nuclear, pro-nuclear folks, and and uh, the different views there, and we try to encourage people to kind of look at both sides. And I think if you take an objective approach to both sides, uh, you'll find that the anti-nuclear side is uh, an interesting case. But when you really drill down everything, consider everything, including other forms of energy, I think the anti-nuclear folks are, really don't have much of a of a case in my view. And then we can get into the different elements uh, that we kind of need uh, for the sector to kind of move higher. Uh, we mentioned some critical elements and some kind of supportive elements as well. And then uh, let's see, just more summarization, nuclear reactors worldwide under construction, operational, of course. Uh, and of course here, we that 452 number does not include a number of Japan reactors are not uh, operational. So that number is not exactly the correct number. And I think most people probably get that. But uh, for, the, for the beginner person, they may not see that. Um, and then of course, there's a little bit of an update on Japan reactor restarts and so forth there, uh, a little bit of status. Got some work to do on that piece, uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know, Japan's Japan's good if they continue to add. But uh, at the end of the day, it's Japan's becoming less and less of a of an issue, and in, in my view, as we've gone on, I think maybe in 2017 it was more of a highlight, but now it's not not so big. But uh, nonetheless, they continue to do their work to restart. And and again, I think in the report we said uh, if we can get to uh, you know 20 reactors, I think that's a good. Uh, a good number. So that's about 10 more from here. So as we continue here, uh, I think this is an important chart as well. Uh, shows prices and volume. Uh, and I think that's a, a nice piece to take a look at. It kind of gives you your spot long term and then of course the corresponding volumes. And so I think that's kind of a preview of what we have coming uh, somewhere probably 2020 onward, 2021 onward. And so I think for a for a period of time there, there will be high volume long-term contracting that'll come in. And so looking back is, is a is a nice place to kind of compare. And, and I think we've got a similar setup uh, coming. And I think we made that pretty clear in the report. Uh, Section 232, I won't talk too much about that. I think we've beat that to death enough. Uh, some other things that uh, parts and pieces here, talking about other reactors that have been canceled and reactors that are in progress and kind of your your Western red tape uh, nations that uh, have a high cost of uh, construction. A uh, little bit of U.S. information here on uh, some planned shutdowns and operating and, and near-term you know, shutdowns and so forth. So it'll be interesting to see how those really play out. Um, I'm not so optimistic that they will all shut down uh, as scheduled. I think that there'll be a number that'll be extended, and I think we're already seeing that. Talked about SMRs already, so I'm going to keep moving here. Uh, we talk catalysts. Uh, here we have U.S. and European unfilled requirements coming forward. As you can see there, the uh, activity starts to really pick up 2021 onward. And so I think we'll have some interesting coming numbers coming out of that soon. And so just kind of a little bit more perspective on, on the forward look of the situation. And then here we, we talk just a bit about listed uranium funds. Not all of them are in there. There's a couple that we missed after I put this together, but uh, kind of gives you a summary of kind of folks starting to pop in and some existing stuff that is already there. Um, of course, probably the biggest highlight there is Yellow Cake that came in in 2018. And then we've got some other uranium-focused funds and capital groups that have come in and have set aside capital for uranium uh, equities mostly and, and also physical. 
Uh, continuing to move on here, we had our catalyst chart, which uh, kind of just summarizes uh, what we see kind of going forward a little bit and kind of a cool little infographic that we had threw together. And then a little bit of event timeline that we had uh, going back to 2016 through 2018. Uh, we thought that that was another good summary for people who are getting up to speed on the sector. And then the industry components, we, we kind of summarized this, uh, some different numbers, uh, counts of different parts of the industry, looking at uranium specifically. And then we put together a nice bear case uh, infographic that we thought was a nice little piece. And anyway, that turned out pretty nice. And, and people can take a look at that as we continue here. Uh, we get into inventory. We talk about Chinese imports, of course. I'm going to move on with this. Uh, I think that uh, this inventory chart um, summarizes kind of our figures, uh, some outside figures, and kind of a comprehensive look at total inventories and, and timelines and so forth. We think this is pretty accurate uh, and also probably a, a little bit conservative. Um, and we kind of kick out some of the stuff that we don't believe is, is really important for the, uh, for the uranium piece. And then we cover mobile inventory, which is our figures on what is really uh, kind of the key inventory. And we talk, of course, uh, as we put this together, we wanted to reflect uh, some of the gains from the last cycle to kind of get people understanding uh, what can happen. And I think this uh, something very similar to this will happen again. And so we went through that. Uh, here we talked about uh, kind of compared peak in the uranium price against uh, the peaks in the equities, some of the major equities last time. So we kind of put this together to give people a perspective. Uh, continuing on here, we think we thought that the market cycle, uh, speaking of the broad market, was important for people to understand. So we wanted to throw in a couple outside infographics and information on that. And then we get into some of our picks um, that we thought was a good representative, representative group to express our view. And I think some of the stuff that's really important is really our strategy to express our views. So that last piece there, I think, is important that people have exposure to those different components, so your producers, developers, uh, discovery, uh, all stage, and so forth. And we've talked about this a couple times, but I think people need to understand that that is a key piece and look at that and kind of formulate, use this strategy as a basis for setting up your portfolio. I think that that is a, a key piece and people should pay attention to that. And then we get into the uh, must-own companies here. Of course, uh, Deep Yellow remains to be uh, one of our, our first must-own. So again, um, we, we cover it here. People can read it, but uh, we like the Borjov team. Uh, John's been in the sector for quite some time, uh, and uh, it's really hard to bet against uh, what he's doing. Um, I know some people have been uh, pissed off that uh, you know Paladin went down, but uh, when you look at the sector, I don't care if they went bankrupt or not. The whole sector got destroyed. So whether you lose 90% in an equity or it goes bankrupt is the same to me. Nonetheless, uh, John's got himself another setup quite well. He's got a great management team around him. And uh, so we, we like what he has there. And he's in a fantastic jurisdiction in Namibia that uh, could provide an, a kind of an all-stage run of discovery, development, and production all in the same cycle. So they, he went ahead and maintained that same spot. And, uh, of course, we'll be evaluating in the future. But right now, they remain number one. And uh, we like that company quite a bit as you can probably guess. Energy fuels, I think energy fuels is, is very uh, a key piece to have, so folks can read that. Uh, Mark Chalmers, of course, coming from Paladin, a uh, lot of global experience, fantastic gentleman, uh, really has a lot of knowledge, and I think energy fuels is a really key piece, not only in the U.S., but their ambitions uh, in a bull run to uh, probably look outside the U.S. 
and expanding their business. So I really like Energy Fuels and um, is our favorite U.S. Uh, play there, which uh, got them the number two spot. Uh, GoVX, of course, uh, being in Africa and Niger with their main project, we like GoVX specifically because Friedland is backing the company. So the Friedland Group uh, is quite a substantial backing uh, aside from others. And so we like GoVX, continue to like them primarily because of the Friedland Group. And uh, with, with Robert Friedland in the background there, um, that company has a nice tailwind that's going to be associated with it. So we like GoVX, it retained that position. Uh, UR Energy is a new ad. We like UR Energy specifically. Uh, Jeff Clenda there, uh, pretty conservative in, in what they're doing and a nice US secondary producer next to Energy Fuels. So we like them from a producer standpoint and also US exposure. Uh, Encore Energy is also a new ad. So uh, Dennis Stover and, and Bill Sheriff uh, last time were able to put together a nice uh, run with uh, energy metals and uh, it seems that they've set that up yet again with with Encore. Great conservative group on the capital side. They've been very good with uh, adding some good assets in the downside of the market and so we like uh, what they're doing. I think it's a pretty good setup so that's kind of our more I guess speculative play um, in the U.S., although they have a lot of assets set up already and and uh, have a pretty good structure to it. So we really like what they've done, and uh, they did really well last time. So pretty much the same team there. So we like what they're doing. And then, of course, Boss Resources. We wanted exposure to Australia specifically, and Boss really ticks all the boxes for us. And so uh, that's why we selected Boss this time around. Uh, we, we needed to get something in Australia, and I think Boss has the best chance there to to get something going with their assets. Uh, then we get into the speculation companies. Uh, Plateau Energy Metals remained uh, in that position. Uh, again, Plateau, we uh, we like Alex Holmes and his team there. Uh, I think that they're going to build a possibly do something quite well here. The speculation, of course, is getting that uh, uranium framework in Peru uh, completed and getting the uh, local governor on board with the project. That appears to be progressing quite well. So I think that they have, uh, next to Argentina, probably one of the best chances to uh, open up a potential other jurisdiction for uranium export. And so that's why Plateau is in our uh, group. And then, of course, ISO Energy, Canadian discovery play, heavily backed by NextGen. Uh, Craig Perry, we like what he's doing. Craig Perry was an original founder at NextGen. Uh, even though it's not mentioned that much, he was part of the original founding team. And so uh, we do like ISO as a play in Canada for discovery. Western uranium and vanadium. Uh, George Glazier, going back to energy fuels nuclear, uh, has had a lot of experience in Colorado. The guy's lived there his whole life uh, from what we can track back to his career, uh, starting out with Bob Adams and then coming back and acquiring some of the energy fuels assets and continuing forward. Um, and then of course, with Steve Antony, working with him uh, from 2006 to 2010, you know, George has the community, he knows the people there. Uh, and so even though there's uh, maybe some some questions with some of the audience or maybe some of the difficulties with uh, George and, and how he's kind of handling things with Western Uranium, I think it makes sense to have exposure to them. Uh, George has a, a lot of experience in the sector, uh, especially being with Bob Adams and uh, Steve Antony from 2006 to 2010. So we kind of highlight the story here and, and get into it. An interesting setup, and, and they have uh, some good potential in our view as well. Uh, Appia, back to Canada, Discovery Play. Uh, James Sykes is, is running the show there. 
we like some of the other management there as well. And so again, it's a speculation discovery play in Canada. Uh, I think there's some good potential. Virginia Energy, interesting story. Uh, we won't get into it too much here, but everybody probably knows by now, Supreme Court case, nice uh, asset in, in Virginia, low grade of course, but uh, surface, pretty nice setup. I would just highlight that uh, the management team is, is is pretty good. And with their share count not changing, 57 million shares uh, more or less in 2013, that's the same amount of shares out today. So absolutely, absolutely impressive uh, from a uh, share capital uh, stewardship standpoint. So Mr. Coles is kind of running the show there. Well, Mr. Coles Sr. and Jr. Um, and we kind of like that as a as just a pure speculation on a court case outcome. Uh, obviously, it's in the U.S., so it might benefit from Section 232. Uh, nonetheless, we like it. And then, of course, we have a cash position, leaving some space open for us in case we find another company we like. Uh, we get into a summary uh, snapshot of our total positions here, summarizing what we just went over. Oh, on the positive mission mention side, so if there's some people who may not agree with some of our picks, that's fine. No big deal. Um, our goal with this report is not to have 30 companies. It, it would really be pointless to put out a report and then throw 30 companies into it. Um, so that's why we did what we did. We wanted to stay concentrated with our view and our strategy. But, you know, some people could take a look at this positive mention list and maybe interchange a few companies that they might like more. Um, that's why we added them here. We reviewed these companies quite a bit, uh, not necessarily the uh, uranium funds, but uh, certainly the equities, the you know uranium equities here um, as far as the other you know, bit there. And so people may want to look at these and maybe consider if they want to change out some spots. I think that uh, this is a good list to start. And it's a short list, so still take a look at that and, and maybe consider that if, uh, if you don't agree with our uh, recommendations that we do have. Of course, here we talk about our old holdings, uh, current holdings, et cetera. Pretty self-explanatory. You can take a look at that. Uh, we talk some different things here. You know, most of these companies are all capital consumers at this point. Okay, and our, our backup or our, our recommendations that we had in the report prior, uh, canceled recommendations, these are in here. We'll probably get some questions on these, but nonetheless, I'll just move through here. And then, of course, uh, we talk about buying and selling. Uh, how to get in. And then I think this is really key. I think folks really need to pay attention to this page here, uh, factors to sell. I think this is important. So I, I would suggest that you guys review these. And uh, this is a really key part because I don't think anybody else has really mentioned this in their reports. Uh, I don't think anybody else has put together a report like this um, in the sector, especially folks have not talked about selling at all. So I think that people need to take a look at this. I think we uh, have a nice set of uh, triggers, uh, primary and secondary triggers that people need to be looking out for. And so we have some rules set up in here. And uh, so I think people should become familiar with this and, and use this as a guide as things uh, move along in the uh, cycle. Uh, we get into some brokers and some other stuff here, other just tips and insights, random stuff that we wanted to add in that was kind of plays a part in the being the total report that we put together. A big fan of interactive brokers uh, for access. It's not the only one, but uh, a pretty good one overall, in, in my view anyway. Um, and so uh, for folks looking for a good broker that has a good, pretty good access to uh, worldwide markets, uh, take a look at them. Uh, virtual brokers as well as kind of a secondary. And there's others, guys. I uh, just wanted to mention these two here. But anyway, nonetheless, we talk about OTC, uh, liquidity, so forth. 
uh, moving on here, uh, we talk about some other stuff, warrants and so forth. Of course, our ongoing guide, speaking of this report and commentary on the sector, is, is covered in Venture Investor. So anybody who wants continuing coverage, uh, I suggest uh, register for Venture Investor. Uh, we get in some other parts and pieces, uh, keywords and market news filtration and so forth. Uh, we talk about some various sources you can use uh, personally to kind of set yourself up to, to get market information. Uh, we talk about uh, uh, John Quakes on Twitter uh, as really a, what we like about what he's done is you really has consolidated sector news. So instead of spending a bunch of time looking for stuff and going to different sources, you can you can pretty much get almost everything on the sector from from John. And of course, uh, Mike Alkin at Sachem Cove, a fantastic gentleman, a uh, lot of information on uh, the market. Uh, he's done a lot of work, certainly probably uh, put in a lot of hours and uh, he's done a nice job putting it together and Mike presents uh, fantastic and has a deep knowledge of the sector, of course. And so Mike's a good guy to listen to and, and see what he's up to. And he's done probably more work than anybody else on the uh, kind of the research side, equity side of the market. And we have some other sources here, of course. Uh, I would highlight Cameco as a nice place to, to kind of look, uh, see what they're up to, follow what they're doing. And then we get into a couple letters. Uh, no big deal here. We're going to pass through this stuff. We have some portfolio updates. And then we get into our discussions. I would say, you know, folks, we, we highlighted some discussions that really are key. And I would think that uh, you would want to read these. Uh, certainly, Dustin and John and Mike Alkin, uh, and then, of course, some of the other, other equities that we covered. I think that these are all really good discussions that people should either listen to or read. And so we wanted to include companies that we had uh, picked for the report here. We didn't get all of them in time, but we got most of them. So I would encourage people to take a good look at this and get on through there. Um, specifically, the Mike Alkin one is also really good for people wanting to get up to speed on the sector. And Dustin Garo is fantastic on information there as well. And we have some other editorials that we get into that have uh, some other stuff that uh, was prior published. You can look this up in Venture Investor, but we wanted to highlight some of these. Uh, what happened during the last cycle, uh, the 2002 broad market crash, and then, of course, the 2007-2008 financial crisis crash and, and how equities responded specifically in the natural resource sector. So take a look at that. We cover some other editorials here, which I'll skip through to move on. And then we get into commentary and feedback. So this is really just a collection of commentary and questions and answers that we've accumulated since we did the report. And so we wanted to add all those in and make sure that was in there. We get into closing, simple uh, closing there, it's kind of summarizing things. And then, of course, uh, we just added in a key couple notes on 232 and a few things that uh, we found that were interesting that we wanted to throw in the appendix. An interview with John Borjoff uh, from the World Economic Forum. And then we get into all of our sources, links, uh, and all that good stuff. And so that's pretty much it, folks. So with that, let's, let's let it go back to Levi here. And uh, Levi, go ahead and take it away, see what we have for questions. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Yep. So just a reminder for our live audience, if you have a question, just submit it via the chat box and add to our question queue. But we had quite a few questions come in before, so we'll start working through those. Okay, so Andrew, so our first question comes from Moke, and he says, Andrew, this is not unique to you, as I've seen the asset allocation of other funds and investors. But I'm curious as to the fact that you allocate similar amounts of funds to plays like ISO and Incor as you do to names like Energy Fuels which seem to be like a much sure thing. What do you, what is he missing and how do you look at your portfolio construction? 
so uh, if you go back and you take a look at the total snapshot of the portfolio, you'll find that we have quite a quite a bit of a weighting in uh, producers that I feel is substantial enough, and then also uh, we have exposure to the U.S. Um, but if you look there, for example, we have uh, you know DPL is a 12%, we have energy fuels at 10%, and then you know uh, our must owns kind of have a higher allocation uh, than it trickles from 8% on down. I think Boss Resources uh, sums it up at 6%, and then we get into our speculations, which obviously uh, the first couple speculations do have that 8% uh, mark, I believe. Um, if I have my information right. And then we trickle down with Virginia Energy as, as a 4% allocation. And then, of course, we have cash. I don't think it's going to depend on everybody's got their own risk tolerance. And this report is our style. Um, but that doesn't mean it fits for everybody. So I would just suggest people look at their own situation. And we don't know what that is. So you're going to have to take a look at use this report as a guide. You can use it exactly or you can modify it to fit what you need. I think our allocations are just fine. Now, we did not include uranium funds. We did not include Cameco uh, because that's not where we want to be with the purposes of this report. But for folks who want to play the, the low-risk game, by all means, Cameco and the uranium funds like Yellow Cake, fantastic. Uh, you could even go low-risk by taking like a Geiger counter uh, fund and getting into them. Uh, that's not where we wanted to be with how we structured this report and how we see the market. But again, uh, those are suggestions, they're guidelines. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to follow them. Um, so we thought we're comfortable with where we are. And of course, we want to enjoy a concentrated pop, which is what we've set up. And so we didn't want to go completely all low risk with what we've set up. Awesome. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, our next question comes from Jonathan J. And the question uh, concerning buyout. So it says, which companies do you think will smell cash and sell out before the uranium bull market has a chance to run up in value? I don't know. I'm not sure that anybody is going to sell early on. I mean, there's there's always that potential. But early on, before the market starts to run up, they're probably unlikely that there'll be a lot going on. Um, it's it's certainly possible, but I really don't have a good bearing on on what that would be. Um, obviously, later on, when the market starts to run up, obviously, there'll be some folks looking to, to sell their companies. Uh, there's probably a good bulk of them will, will try to monetize their assets and, and not have to go into a construction or a production scenario. But early on, before the price goes up, I think we've gotten down to the core group. I don't know that there'll be any more uh, potential sellouts at this point, at least from most of the publicly traded uh uh, equities. Um, will there still be some back-end transactions and some other stuff going on like, uh, you know, Chinese buying Rossine and picking up other assets uh, like that? Sure, I think there might be a little bit of that, but I think most of your your stuff uh, at this point is probably going to hang out for higher prices. All right, our next question comes from JC, and his question says, the report suggests that Ross Beatty is involved in Val Orr. But I cannot find his name anywhere on the website. Is he still affiliated with this company? And if so, in what capacity? Okay, so Valor uh, used to be uh, Kivalag, or however you want to pronounce it, uh, depending on who you are. But uh, so they changed their name to Valor and consolidated shares, if I recall. So Ross didn't didn't appear that he continued to uh, participate in the private placement. So I believe his shareholding dropped below the 10% reporting threshold. So I, I want to say that he probably is still involved. Uh, but at, obviously, he's not doesn't have the share ownership that he did have. Um, so I don't know exactly the status of that, and I think you'd have to do some some digging to figure that out. 
but I know that his uh, sharehold threshold dropped below 10%, which is a lot harder to track him once that happens. So uh, you can kind of keep an eye on the filings. Uh, something might pop up, but no, he's not. He's just a passive shareholder in the business. Uh, I think mostly because of some of the management team, but he's not you know, directly involved from what I understand. Our next question comes from Nick I, and he says, I have developed a hit list of companies in the sector that seem like good investments. And in most cases, these align really well with your own picks in your latest report. One notable absentee is Paladin. Someone would possibly shed some light on why this didn't make your list in 2019 when other prominent people I'm following elsewhere seem to consistently rank it as very viable with the likes of DPLO, Energy Fuels, and GoVX. And he'd love to hear your perspective on that. Okay, so Paladin is, is the biggest uh, listed producer in Australia. Uh, well, they're not a producer now, but nonetheless, they're the biggest company there. And so I can see why people would gravitate towards it, because when you look outside of Cameco and say Energy Fuels and, and some of the companies, producers in the U.S., you know, Paladin's really the only choice. Um, and so I can understand why people gravitate towards that. Makes some sense. We had had the company in the 2017 report, uh, and then, of course, uh, they went into administration and, and we took a loss on that. So we just kind of moved, removed it, and, and because we took that loss and it went into administration, we just removed it from the portfolio. The management team there is secondary. Uh, sorry, but they are. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know them. I haven't really followed them since the new management team has come in there. Sure, will their price go up in a bull market? Absolutely. But I just don't know the name management enough to be comfortable at this point. And so they've got some challenges. They'll need to raise a bit of capital as they highlighted there to, to kind of get stuff going again. Um, you know, they're trying to optimize, you know, all that good stuff, uh, trying to show their costs are better. But, you know, it's kind of a best foot forward type situation now. Um, so I, I just don't see it as uh, really all that, uh, I don't know, motivating for me to look at that. Uh, but again, it will certainly go up and there is an attractiveness for the liquidity that it offers and being one of the largest companies, I'm sure it'll attract some uh, institutions as uh, things kind of start taking off. But yeah, that's pretty much my two cents on it. The next question is about kind of, it's a demand side question and looking at some alternative feeds. So it's from Johnny says, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Russia, China, India development of the fast reader um, reactor technology. Uh, from the research he's done, he sees that it can operate on, you know, a significantly less amount of conventional uranium compared to conventional reactors. And um, that's partly because they consume some form of plutonium. And he also had a question about um, thorium as a reactor source. So maybe your thoughts on where the next generation of reactors coming and if that's going to be a consideration here in the next couple of years. Uh, the short answer is no. Uh Look, this technology looks looked promising, but it's not commercially viable, and, and the costs are not in line with conventional. Um, so again, if there's this thought that uh, somehow a fa fascinating new technology is going to pop out of a box tomorrow, um, I don't see it. This technology, both thorium and uh, these breeder reactors, uh, 2040 if you're lucky. Um, so again, this is certainly not going to affect this cycle. Uh, now going forward, I don't know. Um, but for this cycle, the next 10 years, the next 15 years, I don't see it um, because you would have to wind down all the conventional stuff that's existing and then implement with, with huge capital cost all this new technology. And if you look at the new construction bills right now, it's still conventional. So again, I don't see that any of these really matter. They're in test phases, uh, but they're not commercially viable yet, and uh, their costs are quite high. So I don't see anything, uh, for, certainly from a, I hate to use the word, but because everybody else uses it, but 
from a disruption standpoint, I don't see that being a concern at the, in this cycle at all. All right, so yeah, that sounds great. Um, next question, we have a back-to-back -back from Angel M. And his first question is regards to the Chinese nuclear reactor RepMop. Recently, they announced that they are looking to bring on between six to eight reactors from now until 2030. Um, he says in other areas, chi um, the Chinese have been known to be a little bit too quick in Im implementing projects, sometimes at the expense of quality and security. So you wanted to hear your thoughts on that, that potential worry. You know, are they working with the same sta safety standards as other countries? And does the urgent need for nuclear reactors um, conflict with safety in the future? I don't think so, per se. So look, the Chinese, there's there's just a motivation. You have the government on the backside that, that's promoting this. They want it to get done. There's not really a regulatory burden for, for the Chinese to get this stuff built out. You know, so I, I don't see that uh, they're not like cutting corners. I think that they're using technology that's been around. They're not starting from scratch. So they're not like a Russia or the U.S. starting from scratch back in the, well, the, the commercial reactors started around in the 50s. And so there was there was these bad designs and these other things that happened. Obviously, Chernobyl was was a, was a terrible design and, and just poor oversight and just, just completely uh, sad. Today, we're not in that case. The technology's improved so much better. Uh, the Russians have, have clearly begun to lead, and obviously the U.S. technology is very proven. Uh, and again, most of this stuff spans back to if it wasn't commercial, then it was in the military, the naval applications. Um, so the technology has been around long enough. It's, it's highly robust, much, much more safer. Um, the engineering around the plants is, is much better. I don't see, look, as you continue to increase conventional reactors, Sure, statistics would tell you that if you have a thousand reactors, two thousand reactors worldwide, uh, sure, there's always a chance a higher, higher statistically risk of of some kind of an accident. That's the gamble we take. But I mean, you look at all the other accidents outside of nuclear. You look at gas pipelines blowing up in, in neighborhoods. You look at uh, trains transporting oil exploding and and killing uh, people in a town. Uh, you look at people falling off roofs. You look at the the wind turbines people falling off those, uh, just the, the statistics are all over the place. And so on the accident side for nuclear, I just don't see that uh, what the Chinese are doing would be uh, cutting corners. I think that uh, they're doing a nice job of, of leading the way. And uh, sure, there's always that chance, but with the oversight that's going on, and it's not just China, there's other oversight agencies looking at their construction. Um, I think that they're well within the standards. And going on to the second part of um, and just question, it has to do with uh, Japanese restarts. And he says, we suspect the large bulk of Japanese reactors that plan to restart will be online by 2023 and that the national utilities will be back at the contracting table by that time, if not earlier. Isn't it earlier than 2023 because of the inventories by Japanese utilities? He says, considering that there's an 18 to 24 month lapse, first thought that 2023 as a date of utility recontracting would be a little bit too late. Um, so you just wanted to get your thoughts on whether they were going to come back into the market a little bit earlier than that or where their inventory situation sits with them. Okay. So uh, yeah, I would say 2023 when we used that, that date, that was a little bit conservative, obviously with the fuel cycle and so forth of, of new new contracts and orders and so forth that, that they would still need at least around two years for the cycle to play out uh, on the fuel side. And so uh, looking at their inventory, it's just really a question. I, I, I can't say for certain, and I don't think anybody can. So the Japanese are certainly more conservative with their inventories than say the U.S. is. I think that's obvious. And then of course, we, we do have the restarts that are slowly going. Um, 
but yeah, I think that uh, it is possible for some utilities in Japan to come back to the contracting table earlier than that. So it's 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 a question that's going to be difficult to really answer. So we use 2023 as kind of a, a further out date. Um, it could happen earlier than that. And uh, you would need to take a look at the utilities. Uh, some of the utilities there are, are not doing a lot, whereas others have, have started to restart and so forth. So I think to some degree, there will be a little bit of that starting to happen. But yeah, I think the 2023 date that we provided was uh, kind of a, a further out date. And if you consider the fuel cycle, I would say that they would probably be looking to do it a little bit earlier than that. Okay, thanks, Andrew. We're gonna go here to a live question from Butchers London. And the question is, are the US-based deposits realistically feasible? Companies like UEC, uh, we're talking about old deposits that were not particularly viable in the 70s and 80s when they were discovered and are now spinning them to be more um, realistic producers. What has happened um, in those last 30 years that these might suddenly work? The price. So, and and I just say that as a higher price. So, you know, when you when when the price does go up, even some of the crappiest projects will will all of a sudden become viable, or at least they'll certainly be spun heavily that way. I, to specifically to what UEC has, I, I, I don't, uh, I mean, they have some things that are okay, uh, but uh, as the price goes up, obviously more and more of these things become viable. Uh, but at the current price, you know, most of your viable projects, uh, maybe that like maybe Energy Fuels has, and, and maybe a UR Energy, uh, you know, I think everybody, there's a consensus around there that, you know, these guys really are looking for upper 40s, uh, 50s uh, uranium to really start to kind of pull the trigger on that stuff. Now, if 232 comes in, there is a real push to ramp up U.S. production. You're still going to be, you know, some people say only a couple of years. I, I think it'll be longer, but you'll have a number of years that'll pass to ramp up to whatever level you might get to. Um, you know, if it's uh, 12 million pounds a year or 10 million or 8 million, it's going to take time to get there. And it certainly won't happen, in my view, no less than two years. Um, and so I think price in the U.S. is, is going to be key. As price goes up, some of these projects will be more viable. But as far as their total costs, there's just, there's just no way that any of them, any of them are going to be interested in doing anything until uranium prices are much higher. Uh, some of the projects, you got to remember that there's the community issues and there's various regulatory issues. So obviously we know that Utah is probably one of the best jurisdictions there that, that'll have a good chance of, of really working out really well. Wyoming is fantastic. Uh, New Mexico has some challenges. Colorado has some challenges. And the other places, uh, you know, you look at Virginia, I mean, tough, it's a tough gamble. And of course, now we've got the Supreme Court weighing in on, on what's going on in Virginia. So that might be interesting to see how that plays out. And we'll know soon in the next few months. And other jurisdictions, I, you know, you'd have to look into it. I think there's some stuff in, in the Dakotas. They've got some other challenges. So not only is there a price challenge, but there's the community and regulatory challenges. Um, and then, of course, aside from that, just management's ability to actually uh, deliver. Some of them will just pump up these projects just to continue to get a paycheck. So it's just really buying time. And if you can do that in a bull market, you've got a bit of time. So that, that's what I would say to that. But a, a very good question. All right, thanks, Andrew. But just ask a little bit of a follow-up here, and I think it's a pretty interesting question. Um, and maybe this would be best to consider maybe if Section 232 doesn't give the U.S. Um, companies any advantage. But he asks about a little bit of the pecking order. In the event that the uranium price starts to go up, what order do you see companies in different countries being able to come online? He kind of asks about 
Kazakhstan, maybe coming, being able to ramp up production first and maybe Cameco and then maybe some of these African employees. Um, so I'd be interested to hear your perspective on who's going to be able to react first when the price starts to rise and who we're going to see this production actually come on from. Okay. So on new mines, uh, notable production mines, we're not talking about the small stuff. So notable mines, new ones, Africa. Now who there, that's going to be a little bit of a speculation, but obviously you've got either Namibia or Niger is going to be the two places there. So that's new notable production. Outside of that, you do have the situation, if everything went well with Boss Resources, uh, you, you have a, a fantastic situation set up there because they have a pretty quick timeline to get to potential notable production. Uh, I won't mention the small stuff. Uh, moving over to restarts, Kazakhstan just needs to put in a bunch of CapEx to get their stuff kind of going because they've got decline rates with their ISR projects. Uh, there's probably some, some levers they can pull there, but nonetheless, it's going to take them time to do that. As far as MacArthur River and Cameco, um, I think that uh, Cameco uh, will look to certainly fill Cigar Lake uh, as, as a key importance, probably first, and then go back to MacArthur. So MacArthur, they need to rehire people now because uh, they probably are not, not going to have too many people hanging around from the original crew. It's not like they're sitting at home twiddling their thumbs waiting for uh, Cameco to call them. So they've got to re get some people back. I don't know, probably 500 or so. I don't know what the number is, but they got to rehire, restart and go through all that. So by the time that happens, I think realistically, aside from getting some, probably some additional contracts there and making sure that the price is up enough to restart there. Um, I think that you're looking at uh, probably if it was tomorrow, if uranium was $45 tomorrow, uh, from there, you can probably figure a good estimate, middle of the road, two years. So two years to get back to full production, ramp up, and uh, so forth. But again, I don't think Cameco is interested in doing anything there until they have a confirmed higher price. And I don't think that they'll start looking to do anything until they can first get contracts booked up and the uranium price is corresponding to uh, at least 40 to $50. And again, now you've got to also include fuel cycle time for that, that restart and all that. So it's a real bottleneck. And so people, you know, kind of think that this stuff will just get turned on at 45 or 50 bucks. That is true somewhat, but the timing will take much longer than people anticipate. It's not going to be six months. It's not going to be a year. I can promise you that. So anyway, that's that's kind of the situation that we see it. Uh, and then on the uh, the quickest time on the new mines, I think that Africa has probably your best chance of having new mines online from the start of construction. Most of those projects will take two years if everything goes well. Uh, some might take a little bit less, but it really depends on the execution of the management team. And of course, we know the permitting times in Africa are quite fast. So that's what I would say. Watchers has a follow-up um, question about a little bit a strategic question on Cameco. And he asked, does, does it make more sense for Cameco maybe to buy a project like Aero or Fission's uh, project versus restarting MacArthur? I don't think so. Look, I, you know, I don't know what Cameco's views are. They obviously have the technical people there and they get to look at these projects. But those projects have long timelines, longer, longer than it takes to restart MacArthur River. Again, and again, we, the only question there is, is how do we, how do you get through that regulatory piece? Uh, how long is that really going to take? And no one can really answer that question. And I know, I know they're doing their best to make sure the community's happy and making sure the government happy and so forth. But at the end of the day, we don't know how long that's really going to take. And so while there might be those types of acquisitions, uh, at some point during the cycle, 
I don't know that anybody, you know, I don't know if those particular two companies would sell anything uh, early on like this. I mean, it's certainly possible depending on what their goals are, if they're looking to ex exit early. But uh, no, I don't, I don't see that as an early on strategy. Could be wrong, but uh, I don't see where that really makes sense for Cameco. I think they've got the uh, the stuff they need for now. Um, I think later on, I think they'll look to expand that portfolio. But um, it depends on price too. I mean, if Cameco comes out and offers some outrageous amount of money, I mean, they might take it. But uh, I don't see that that is the case at Cameco. Um, I'm not not sure that that is their strategy at this point. I think uh, think they're going to rely on. Uh, some of their existing assets first. A little bit of a technical question here from Nick I about um, actually executing some of these trades. And the example he gives here is GoBX. So he has easy access to the New York Stock Exchange, but like something like GoBX trades on Canada's TXX and it also is on the OTC as a little OTC ticker as well. So his question is, what is the OTC market? Is that something that retail investors should be involved in? Um, what are kind of some of the considerations with OTC um, when buying names like GoBX? Okay, so uh, yeah, if I understand, he's in Australia. Um, so look, you should have a broker that has global access. And so that's why we had mentioned interactive brokers. That's not the only one, but uh, you really need to have a broker that gives you some kind of a global access uh, because GoVX, I believe, is listed OTC. Um, and also in Canada, but they don't have a listing in uh, Europe. And so I would just say that he needs to make sure he has a good broker because any good broker, you should have access to at least one of these. Uh, with regards to OTC, uh, if you can get it, obviously uh, it's one of the main options for US-based investors who don't have uh, access outside. But again, even, even US investors can get the right broker. But nonetheless, uh, OTC, you certainly want to look for a QB or QX listing, in my view. And then, of course, you want to find the exchange that, that best represents the uh, most volume, if possible. So you want to find the place that has the most liquidity. Sometimes that is the OTC. So that's what I would say to that. And we cover that in the report. But uh, in the case of him, I, I would just suggest that, look, if you can't get access to the TSXV or the TSX, you probably don't have the right broker. Going to a question from James in the audience. Um, he asked, can you explain uranium grade percentage and how important this is to someone who's new in the area? He says one commentator said to only buy low costs and high grade companies. Um, what, what is your thought on that and how important does grade percentage play in your role in evaluating these companies? Okay, so uh, look, low grade, I mean, I'm sorry, high grade, low cost. Well, that's all great, but at the bottom of the, at the end of the day, it's tough to find those two things. And one of the problems with that is, is management. I'm sorry, but at the end of the day, that low cost has a lot to do with management. It also has to do with obviously the location of the project infrastructure and all that. Uh, but unfortunately, when you look at some high grade stuff, you tend to focus at Athabasca, Canada, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Cameco has some fantastic projects up there and, and uh, so forth, but also a lot of those projects have a really high capital cost to, uh, to build out. And so I would just say that uh, while that is one place to look, you also need to look at management's ability to be cost effective. So you need to weigh that. And it's really hard to weigh that when you have a developer that you really haven't seen their costs. They haven't actually gone live. They haven't been able to, you can't go back and look at their income statements and look at their production and really compare. And so it's really difficult. So you really have to have a high level of confidence in management that they can really deliver on what they're saying in their 
feasibility studies and their PEAs, which often are optimistic. And so I would just caution you with that. Uh, it, it doesn't really, to me, it doesn't matter. People say grade is king. Well, I say management is king. Grade, grade is important and uh, certainly is, is a key piece, but it's not everything. And so I would just flip it around for a moment and go back to Africa. Let's take a look at Deep Yellow's project. Um, and again, I'm not I'm just talking that because Deep Yellow is our number one position. It's just the fact that the project uh, is a low grade, but the minerals at surface. And when I say at surface, I'm not talking about at surface as people talk about in Canada in the Athabasca Basin. I'm talking about really at surface. I mean, this stuff is just absolutely shallow. It's easy to dig out. It's easy and it's all low cost. And again, that that piece is also has to do with management's internal costs, the GNA costs and so forth. And so I would just say you need to look at both. Look at the management team, look at the project, look at the costs, uh, look look at what, what it takes to get it out of the ground and so forth. So um, unfortunately, it's a really Pacific, uh, you need to consider all of the above. That's, that's what I would say. I do not prescribe to if it's high grade, it's gonna be the best. That is only one component. Uh, again, you can have the best highest grade project in the world, but if management is a bunch of screwballs, then uh, that's going to remain where it is, underground and high grade, but it's not coming out. So that's that's my view on it. Uh, again, it's it's there's a bunch of pieces that you really need to consider, but I would not hang your hat fully on high grade. We have a kind of two-part question here from um, Palace, and it says, first, could you comment on the reasons, um, singular or plural, that um, you stopped recommending 4C metals? So for us, we just we were looking at we needed to cut a position or two. Uh, to get back where we wanted to be with 11 companies uh, for now. And obviously some of that made up our cash position uh, in the report. So forces, uh, the management management team had a shakeup uh, earlier uh, in 2018. We just didn't feel like it was a, uh, a position we wanted to keep with the ones that we were going to add. We have a higher conviction for the ones that we added. And so forces was one of those that we wanted to cut out. If you go back and look at the uh, forces, uh, there's a, a major shareholder there, a group out of the UK that I believe has remnants of uh, the group that tried to get the company bought out during the last cycle. Uh, but the Canadian authorities blocked the transaction uh, due to where that was coming from. So Forces never got bought out because the Canadian uh, government, probably at the request of the U.S. government, canceled the transaction and did not allow it to proceed. And so I think the remnants of that group is still there. However, management was, was shaken up, obviously, because probably there was no, there was probably a disagreement on something. So just with the shakeup in management, the fact that we could not even reach them, uh, the fact that... Uh, <laughs> We, we can't even send an email to them or the investors had sent an email to them and it was immediately returned because their server was not functioning. We just said, you know what, this this doesn't work right now. We had made money on forces. Uh, so when we sold it, uh, we had made some money on it. And, you know, look, if it comes back uh, with any of these companies, we are watching them. If they get cheap enough, they get to stupid cheap levels, we may look at them again. But right now we just thought it was a, a cut and we had some better, higher conviction uh, positions we wanted to add back. So I hope that helps uh, answer the question. That's great. And then looking at the second part of the question is about um, Plateau in Peru. And it says, you know, Plateau was um, seemingly downgraded from being a must own in the report to being in the speculation pile. Um, and he understands that there's a uh, potential political risk. And so he wanted to just hear your comments on uh, Plateau. 
Well, in in in, uh, in all honesty, I, I don't know if we would we restructured the report. So I guess I guess you could probably use the word downgrade, but uh, we restructured it. Uh, plateau does have more speculative nature to it overall, and we felt after going through after. Uh, through 2018 and, and seeing some of the market changes and, and our reviews uh, going back again, looking at these companies, we reviewed a lot of co companies again. Plateau has some more speculative nature to it than what we would really consider must own. So there was some adjustment. It still obviously is first on our speculation list, but he's right. We do have, we need a uranium framework, which seems to be well on its way. And then we need really the endorsement of the uh, the local governor uh, interesting gentleman, but nonetheless, we need to have him uh, confirm that. And then, obviously, there's the normal fundamentals like uh, we need a higher uranium price, we need the market to take off, we need uh, offtakes to get signed. They have the lithium asset, which, uh, you know, do they continue to stick that under one roof or do they spend that asset out? How do they go about doing that? But uh, with, with Alex Holmes leading there, uh, we do like the company, we do like some of the other management. And so, we wanted to keep it, and uh, I think that they've got some good potential, and that's why it ended up as a speculation for us. And of course, uh, in that speculative column, it's still number one. So uh, it was still remains a core part of our report and a core part of our strategy. Great, thanks, Andrew. And for our live audience, this is going to be our last call for submitting questions. So we're going to go to our last um, pre-submitted question. So if you can submit your question before we finish up with that, it'd be great. So. Going to Angel M's um, question regarding the nature of contracting and the relationship between miners and utilities in the context of the broader fuel cycle. How does it all really work? Utilities contract with miners directly and then tell miners to deliver the U308 to the next process of the fuel cycle? Or do utilities you know, contract the different nuclear fuel cycle services um, with enrichers and so on? Um, he'd like to have some more color on that process and who manages the relationship throughout. Is it, you know, the, the miners, the, the nuclear fuel side utilities or the enrichers kind of give us some perspective on that, Andrew. Okay. So it's going to depend a little bit on, on what the terms of these contracts are, but, but in general, most of them producer has the responsibility. Again, it depends where you're at, but you know, more or less if you're a energy fuels in the U S you really just got to get it from your project, uh, transit to your conversion facility. And then really from there, uh, the utilities in general, most of the utilities like to have custody once it arrives at the uh, converter, in some cases, once it arrives at the uh, at the port. So if you're sending you know, uranium cans to uh, from Africa, uh, say out of Namibia, Walthus Bay to the US, you know, in some cases, uh, custody is taken over at the port at the importing country. And so if you really look at the general formats of these contracts overall, the utilities like to control it from that point. There are other you know, situations that might be a little bit different, but in general, the uranium miner uh, really just needs to get it to that destination facility, that destination uh, converter, or that destination port. Um, from there, the utilities usually take it. The utilities like to have their hands on the entire fuel cycle and they like to be in charge of kind of that custody because the utilities are also the ones who sign up the contracts with these uh, converters and enrichers, fabricators, et cetera. So the utilities like to have their hands over the control of, of that entire process. Okay, Andrew, we have one question here from James and James says, are 30 extra turns possible on some of these companies? Um, Maybe with example of GoBX, we see this kind of popular on Twitter that people are saying, um, 
that they kind of expect these pie in the sky um, type returns. Um, and he said, lastly, he wanted to thank you for the report. Oh, well, well, I appreciate that. Uh, the short answer is yes. Will each person be able to participate to that 30x point? No. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of dynamics that are going to play out uh, between that. Will some achieve that? Sure, why not? Um, I think that they will. Uh, I think the most difficult part will be the ability to stay with the the uh, cycle and stay with the, the thesis. So will these companies run to that level? Absolutely. Do I know which ones? No, I don't. So I think it's it's critical that uh, people maybe use this report as a guide to kind of follow that out and, and look at where we are, look at the events, watch those triggers and uh, kind of proceed forward. But absolutely, I think that uh, this sector when you go back and look, has some of the most amazing, spectacular, fundamental setup uh, from all perspectives that uh, that I've ever seen. It's really, really fantastic, which is why I've spent so much time on it. I mean, look, we're not here to sell <laughs> sell a, a report. I mean, if you look at the numbers, there's, it's 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 a loss for us. We like it because. It really is an interesting, one of the best situations I've ever seen uh, in the whole market. I, I would probably compare it a little bit to, and this is a really piss poor comparison, but I would re relate it to like Bitcoin in like 2014, 2015, with the exception that this is so much better because it's a real physical item, uranium, that goes into a key part of energy infrastructure in the world, whereas Bitcoin is completely arguable uh, about its entire premise. Um, whereas this is not, this is a real thing that goes into plants and it's absolutely fantastic. And so the setup that is occurring is just absolutely amazing. And at where we are in the market today, the big market, there is really not much else that's really exciting. I mean, commodities in general uh, has some, some good key points to it. Natural resources have some pretty good setups going on, but uranium really has the most one-sided setup with incredible upside that I've seen. So I hope that puts it a little bit into perspective. And uh, the only question is is when. Uh, that's the only question that needs to be answered. And of course, how we manage that. You know, if we have a broad market decline, how we manage that. Uh, obviously, we're able to do that with cash, and being careful about how we get into our positions. But uh, that's kind of the, the premise that, that we've got forward. And, and of course, uh, the road going forward is not going to be perfect. It's not going to be one way all the way up. There's going to be some some trying times and some pullbacks and outside forces that probably come in. But uh, nonetheless, I think it's a fantastic setup and uh, really excited to catch this, uh, this part of the cycle. All right. Thanks, Andrew. I'm going to leave the chat open for the next 30 seconds to one minute if we have any final questions. So we're just going to leave that open here for a second. And if not, we'll go ahead and um, work towards closing up. And so I would just say, add, add to Levi, that uh, we appreciate everybody coming in. And I think there's going to be a lot more people uh, checking out the recording of this. But uh, we appreciate everybody supporting the, the report. As, a, as I said earlier, I think we've got uh, probably close to 200 uh, purchases of the report, not including the uh, elite members, um, which is our elite group that uh, – gets all of our stuff for free. But uh, nonetheless, we've got it, got it out there quite a bit. And uh, it was quite a bit. We, we probably won't do much more uh, this year on uranium. We're going to probably have a couple other special events and, and have some commentary, of course. But this report uh, wore us out quite a bit. Um, and uh, But I think overall, if, if you look at the final product, I think it really lines up to be one of the best comprehensive things that uh, is out there on the sector. And I'm hoping that everybody felt like the uh, 
$50 or $25, depending on when you bought it, was well worth the uh, the effort. And of course, that money will uh, help to support some of our costs. Um, you know, we're still losing money, but uh, nonetheless, it'll help support some of the servers and, and some of the uh, systems that we're using and the publication costs and uh, maybe just a small, small, small fraction of my time uh, put into it. And so I, I really hope everybody enjoys it. And uh, it was fun putting it together. And I think that's the whole thing is that there's a motivation for me to uh, really try to put together a good piece of work on this and good research because it's such a sector and such a topic that's so motivating uh, for me. And uh, I hope a lot of people feel that same way about the sector and, and the motivation that's coming. And uh, it's gonna be interesting to see how we can ride this thing up. So I'll leave it there if there's any other questions. Uh, Levi, go ahead and take it away. All right, seeing no farther questions. Um, if there are any unanswered questions or you like, did not get to today, or if you think of more um, right as you sign out of this webcast, please send them to Smith Weekly via Twitter, direct message. Um, you can alternatively contact them through their website or by sending an email to feedback at smithweeklyinternational.com. We will then respond to all of our audience in our next venture investor newsletter issue. So with that, Andrew, any final comments before we close out? Uh, no, that's it. Everybody, thanks for joining us today. I know you've got better things to do, um, so we'll let you get back to your normal routine day. Uh, Levi, I want to say thanks to you for coming on and taking your time and uh, coming on to assist us with this uh, for free. Uh, really do appreciate that, and uh, we thank everybody for coming.